But the negative economic argument is basically that we've, you know, back in 1970, we spent 10% of our income on transportation. And between 1970 and the present time, we pretty much doubled the number of roadways in the US. And now what we've accomplished by that is we now spend 20% of our income on transportation. We've managed to tie ourselves to the least efficient, most costly system for getting ourselves around. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. I created this podcast and the School for Good Living to share what I've learned and to keep exploring the question, what does it mean to live a good life and how can we do it? Despite my privilege, I lived for decades in a pretty dark place, and I know that living is often a painful, difficult, and messy business. But I also know that it can be wonderful beyond imagination, and that it's a skill at which we can improve. That's why every episode is a conversation with an author who's an expert regarding spirituality, health, relationships, work, rest, and play, or money. I also ask my guests about their creative habits, routines, and mindsets, and what they've done to get their books written, published, and read. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. For all the things you do to improve the quality of your life, from your daily habits and routines to the foods you eat, the exercise you do, the sleep you get, all of that is fantastic. But how much do you think about where you live and the impact that it has on the quality of your life? My guest today, Jeff Speck, is a city planner and urban designer who advocates internationally for more walkable cities. He's created something called the General Theory of Walkability, something he lays out in his book, Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. He shares how creating walkable cities can help us to be happier, healthier, have less impact on our environment, greater sense of community, more equity, and improve our lives financially as well, and the economics, personally and as a society. Jeff is someone who, part of what I love about Jeff's work is that he points out paradoxes that aren't necessarily evident, at least they weren't to me. Things like widening roads doesn't necessarily make them safer, because people just go faster and then they're deadlier. Or widening roads to alleviate congestion doesn't lead to less congestion, paradoxically it leads to more. Or the fact that, yes, Cities do create more carbon emissions than rural areas, but not when you measure it on a per capita or a per person basis. So Jeff points out paradoxes, contradictions, goes beyond the surface of the way we live. Now you might be thinking, why does that matter to me? Well, you might not be a public official. You might not work in transit. You might not work in urban designs, or maybe you do. If I had learned some of the things that Jeff was sharing when I was in college, I might've taken my life and my career this way because I hadn't thought a lot about the design of our cities, of our environments as having such an impact on all those things, but it might for you. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope you take away something that you find interesting. Maybe you'll move (laughs) where you're living, or maybe you'll take a more active role in the community where you are to make your city more walkable. You can learn more about Jeff and his work at jeffspeck.com. You can also find him on Twitter, You can also find Jeff's TED Talks, which have been viewed more than 4 million times. Jeff is a great communicator. He's funny. He's interesting. His ideas are insightful. I think you'll enjoy them. 
Although Jeff leads with walkability, he also touches on transit and bicycling. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend and walking advocate, Jeff Speck. Jeff, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you for having me, and I intend on living very well for the next 90 minutes. Yes, I'm looking forward to that as well. Jeff, will you tell me, please, what's life about? (laughs) Well, I have this conversation with my children. I have a boy who's 12 and a boy who's 10, and the younger one is particularly curious about why he's alive. (laughs) And he asked that question, not sadly, but he asked that question on occasion. I've decided that I'm an Epicurean. And an Epicurean, at least on the surface of it, is, or how people understand it, is someone who enjoys good things, good living, good wine and food and a well-set table and and just living it up and partying and all that. But actually, if you look into it a little bit deeper, which I haven't done except for a tiny bit, <laughs> what, I've, what I've seen is that Epicurean, Epicureanism is about increasing the amount of pleasure in the world. And if you think about what that means, you inevitably get down to the goal of decreasing the amount of pain in the world. That's the most effective way to increase the amount of pleasure in the world is to decrease the amount of pain in the world. So my philosophy about what life is about is to make it better for everyone else, the best that you can, ideally by making other people's lives better. That sounds a little bit pat now that I say it, but if you if you frame it within the concept of, of pleasure, I think you get a much broader understanding of what's possible. So when my kids ask me what's life about, I basically say, and I'm not a philosopher, and so I'm not the kind of person to ask this question, but you asked it. I usually say you should have as good a time as you can while you're alive. Um, The long-term impacts will probably be minimal. But while you're here, you should have as good a time as you can have while giving as good a time to as many other people as you can as well, and perhaps giving them less of a bad time. Right on. Well, thank you. No one has uh, ever answered in quite that way. <laughs> so not surprised. That's no surprise. Though your work is is quite unique from most of the guests that I've from I would say all the guests I've had on the show. And I'll tell you, as I read your book Walkable City, I found myself thinking I might have missed my calling <laughs> like in college. I didn't even know this was the thing, you know, urban design and so forth. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let me ask this question because you've espoused this philosophy about minimizing pain helping to increase you know, the pleasure and, and maybe even the joy in the world, although you didn't use exactly that word. But each of us, I think, ultimately needs a vehicle or a way in which we take whatever it is we believe or we value and share it with the world. So what is your way of doing that? So that's actually something I do think about a lot because there are different ways to have different impacts. And uh, if you don't mind my going off a little bit on this. Please. As a a designer, it's a very important question to ask regarding the type of work that you take on. So my mentors were Andre Stuani and Elizabeth Plater-Seiberg, who are husband and wife, whose whose firm, DPZ, created this movement called the New Urbanism, which was about rediscovering traditional ways of making places and reinvigorating our our older cities and building new places that function and feel like the old places that we love. And... I worked with them for 10 years and I was kind of in charge of the of the choices the firm was making regarding business decisions at one point. And I said to them, or I asked Liz, I said, you know, if, if we did this, if we took on this staff and changed the firm in this way, we could do a lot, many more projects, expand our reach. 
And she said to me, you know, Jeff, we've done 200 projects and 198 of them have not, have not had the impact of the other two. And her point was that actually, and these two projects happen to be places you can look them up called Seaside and called Kentlands. And if you look them up, you realize that, you know, they were the trendsetters and they were the ones that made the most change and had the most uh, radical <laughs> propositions at the time when they were, when they were built. And the, the the larger lesson there is that you can you have to be very careful that you're you're not spinning your wheels doing the same thing over and over again. But also, if you choose your work very carefully, you can do very little and have a tremendous impact. I think of Gutenberg, by the way, on that as an example. Yeah, there you go. One really good idea. <laughs> One thing, and bam. <laughs> yeah. So, in the very narrow context of being a, a designer. I would say one makes change by doing projects that are unprecedented and and also well publicized. But that kind of gets into the larger answer to the question, which is that that my principal impact in my work has been because I'm able to write about it. So the you know I have my own firm and I do I do plans and I think they're great plans and I'm skilled at creating them, but the place where I've been able to make a real difference because I'm, I'm one of many people. I'm one of a hundred. My firm is one of a hundred that can give you a damn good plan for, for a site, you know, or to re- revitalize a city center. But where I've been able to have the most impact is by writing about it. And actually the first time I did that was with Andres and Liz. So when I heard Andres and Liz, when I heard Andres speak for the first time and give one of his classic lectures in 1989, my initial reaction was, wow, this is the best story I've ever heard. And secondly, this needs to be a book. And it took, it took 11 years, but eventually we, we wrote together with me doing the first draft, uh, a book called Suburban Nation, which ended up having a very large impact in helping to spread the, the mission of the, of, the, of the firm and of the new urbanism. But my voice, which is honestly just a written version of the way Andres talks, <laughs> is has proven, I think, to be a really good way to get this message out. And so I'm not thinking about it often enough, but the, I think the, the way that I can have the most impact in an ongoing way is to keep that communication line open. And both through the books, but then eventually I learned, and now currently through all the, all the, ta- all the speaking I do and the videos and that sort of thing. But the you know, when the history is written about the new urbanist movement, if it deserves it, I think, you know, my, my, my role will be that of, of communicator, I think. That, that puts additional pressure on me to be articulate with you this morning. <laughs> and witty and charming. Yeah, no. now, now the pressure is really on, but, but the, if at any point this begins to sound not humble, I think, you know, what I really want to make clear is that I've had so few ideas of my own. Like, like, I am not, I get credit for a lot of the ideas in the new urbanist movement. And I don't know if I've, if I've had an original design idea in my, in my whole career, but what I've been able to do is collect everyone else's and share them in a way that people find interesting to listen to. Yeah. I've, I've found them interesting. I've watched three of your Ted talks. I read walkable city. I've been on your website and I've learned so much things that I'd never even thought thought about. And part of what I love about the bit of your work that I've consumed is about how it starts to expand my awareness where every one of us is born in a time and a place 
And in some ways, we're the product of, or maybe even the victim of, the circumstances in which we're born. And we don't think about things like, hey, what's a neighborhood, right? Like, why are there so many damn parking lots? Or why is the solution to congestion always making the roads wider? I mean, we just take it as a given that those are the solutions, right? And so you really helped. First of all, I found it really interesting, just as a curious learner. But I realize I might not be your typical reader. So one of the things I was curious about as I read is this book in particular, I know you've written multiple books and Walkable Cities, actually not your most recent book, but that's one that maybe contains the essence of, of your ideas, the general theory of walkability. So my question is, who did you write this book for? Or who do you write for? And what do you want your writing to do for them ultimately? Well, that was the other kind of breakthrough, which is that not that many planning books or city planning books or urban design books are written for a general audience. And very few that are have been successful. There are a few crossover books that might have been written for planning audiences that were just so well written that people, that lots of people read them. For example, a, pa- a Pattern Language by Christopher Alexander is a book that was really written for designers that, that so many people read and not just designers. But my goal has always been, and I don't know why, I don't know why, maybe because I wasn't a popular child, but I want my books to be popular. <laughs> and from the beginning, when I started learning about these concepts of design, and I want to get back to what it means to observe your environment and not ask questions, as you suggested. But from the beginning of, of hearing these ideas, it struck me that everyone needed to hear them and that they were generally fascinating and that there was a place for a book that talked about them. And in fact, you know, when, when I heard Andres give his talk, which he used to call just Towns versus Sprawl, it struck me as, as exactly the way you described. Like I had all these feelings that were kind of these inchoate, not enunciated feelings about why I loved certain places and hated other places. And I hadn't thought much about the forces and the techniques that had caused those places to come into being. And what this talk, Towns versus, I'm selling the wrong book, but what this, what this talk, which became Suburban Nation, basically laid out was, wow, I mean, there are two different ways to design cities. There's one that we've used for millennia and it's always worked. And there's one that we've, we've been using for 50 years and it's a failure. And we've made it illegal to do it the, the right way. And here's why we love one and hate the other. And here's how we can make it normal again. And that just struck me as something that everyone needed to, to hear. So being someone who was interested in influencing public opinion and gaining a large readership, I found a literary agent through a connection, you know, in so much of our lives, as you've talked about, is about the, the fortune that we might have in our connections and, and uh, just circumstances that we're in. And I had, I had the ability to connect with a literary agent who found, you know, an outline on that topic to be compelling. And we found a publisher, some would say the best publisher for our Strauss. And that book went out and was quite successful. So then when, when 10 years later, I realized that I had, I had another book to write that was more about cities and less about sprawl and suburbs, I went back to them and I was lucky enough to get that, to get that contract. But the you know, I began with the goal that not that many design writers begin with, which is I want everyone to read this book, particularly if you're in, in the academy, you know, that's almost looked down on, right? 
people in, at, at Harvard are writing for people at, at uh, Columbia and vice versa. <laughs> and that never really appealed to me as a strategy. I should say, and you're kind to mention my more recent book, it's called Walkable City Rules. It is not meant for your audience, probably. It's, I would love for it to have a large audience, but it's much more meant for people who are doing the work. So Walkable City, Walkable City Rules, 101 Steps to Making Better Places is 101 rules. Each one is two pages with a, a headline and a subtitle and a text and a picture and a, or diagram and a rule at the end, like how wide to make your, your lanes when you're creating a street. That's super important if you're doing the work and it's the stuff that everyone gets wrong. So I feel that everyone who's doing the work needs to read it. But you are correct that Walkable City is the book that was written to convert more generalists to this cause and that uh, still does very well as a general book that's sold for people who are curious about about cities and, and urban design. Yeah. Something you talk about that, first of all, I love to walk. I sometimes think, when, I? I've said to my wife when I'm 60, and as I go to say this in this moment, <laughs> The confidence that I once felt is not quite there at this moment, but I said, when I'm 60, I'm going to walk across India. And I think from time to time about walking across the United States, I've organized 50 mile walks here in Utah for many years and so forth. So that's part of what intrigued me just about walkability. But then as I learned about sprawl, as I learned about how the automobile has shaped our landscape or we've allowed it to and so forth. And you talk about like sprawl is one of the worst Worst things that that we've ever done. <laughs> yes, it's the worst thing we've ever invented. I would say worst yes. thing we've ever invented. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty pretty bold claim, and the car is what's made that possible. And these three things that you talk about about the economics, about the the environment, right, and about health as these three things. Will you will you just share a little bit about that? I mean, people listening, they might they're like, why is sprawl such a bad thing? Right, but what what is this and these three things about the environment, the health, and the the economics? So my in Walkable City, there's the ten steps of walkability, which talks about what we can do in our communities. But the first part of the book is why walkability, and there's three chapters. One's called Why Johnny Can't Walk. Right, that's about health. Actually, I don't remember the names of the chapters, but they're. They're, they're focused on the three other professions that were talking from their own Bibles, ultimately about the same God that I was talking about, but much more effectively and uh, convincingly. So for years, we had been arguing planner arguments and architect arguments and aesthetic arguments about why we needed to make our cities different and getting some successful response, but nothing like the sort of response due to their compelling arguments that the uh, economists were getting, the epidemiologists were getting, or the environmentalists were getting. So I made an effort to study all three of their arguments, and I'm very forthright about you know, citing my sources. For economics, it's largely a fellow at Brookings named Chris Leinberger, who for many years ran one of the largest real estate companies in the US. For health, it's a bunch of epidemiologists uh, led by, his name is so normal, I always blank on it. For health, it was a, a bunch of epidemiologists, most notably led by Dick Jackson, who was, I think, Schwarzenegger's uh, health guru in uh, when he was governor of California. 
And for the environment, it was a great book, actually, called um, Green Metropolis by David Owen, who's a New Yorker writer. But then supplementing that with lots of other sources. The principal economic argument, there's kind of a positive side and a negative side. I don't want to spend too much time on this because, of course, it's well laid out in my TED Talks and in my book. And I would direct your audience to my TED Talks, which in 15 minutes each really lay out the stuff that I'm trying to say. And one of my TED Talks called The Walkable City is all about the why. It's about what I'm about to say. And the other one, which I think is called Four Steps to the Walkable City or something like that, um, is about how to do it in your community. But the negative economic argument is basically that we've, you know, back in 1970, we spent 10% of our income on transportation. And between 1970 and the present time, we pretty much doubled the number of roadways in the U.S. And now what we've accomplished by that is we now spend 20% of our income on transportation. We've chosen to tie ourselves. You've got nothing to do with the auto industry, do you? Joking. You know. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've managed to tie ourselves to the least efficient, most costly system for getting ourselves around. And so it's created this tremendous tax on our economy. And thank goodness we have a very wealthy economy because we're spending so much of it on that that choice, which is just so inefficient in terms of moving people. And if you're poor, you're actually, as so defined by the federal government, you're spending as much or more on transportation than you are actually on housing. So it's become this incredible burden on our pocketbooks. But then there are much more compelling economic arguments to be made about the value of cities and the value of walkable cities. And the amazing data, thanks now to WalkScore, you know, which is this website you can go to and rank the walkability with some, with some accuracy, not great accuracy, but enough accuracy. You can rank the walkability of your community. It's very easy to demonstrate that people value walkable places tremendously more than drivable places. And that, you know, the same the same square footage in leafy country club drivable suburbia is worth a quarter of what it is in downtown <laughs> where you can live without the expense of a car. So there's tremendous demand for these places. And then there's the even more fundamental argument that, you know, well, why do cities exist? They exist for an economic reason, which is that we're more productive when we're close together in proximity with each other, that the denser cities generate more uh, patents per capita that the more you drive, actually, the, the less wealthy your state is. You know, there's all these really interesting data points, but it's very clear from people who study cities and the way that biologists study bodies that a more dense walkable place is just a much better engine for, for wealth. The health arguments are in some ways the most obvious. We've pretty much made walking useless in this country. And there was a book that came out in 2004 called Urban Sprawl and Public Health by these three doctors, including Dick Jackson and Howard Frumpkin, and then a, a planner actually named Frank, not a doctor, but they all, um, I believe it's Michael Frank, but they, they, um, they basically laid out a tremendous amount of, well, well I think what was, what was most important is that they're doctors, they're public health experts, and they discovered that probably the greatest threat to our health is the way that we've organized our communities. Yeah, and that that was such a huge insight to me to say that increasingly, because you write in your book, it's becoming clear that American the American healthcare crisis is largely an urban design crisis. Yeah, and and I love these things that are not necessarily obvious, but when you really start looking at, at numbers and 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 the reality of what's going on in our country, that there's a lot of a lot of evidence for this. 
Yeah. And all, and, and, you know, diet matters, but all we talk about is diet and it's half the picture. It's calories in and calories out. And we've engineered out of existence, the useful walk. And because we no longer have a reason to walk, we're told we should walk for exercise. Well, you know, a certain percentage of the population and it's a minority will sign up for a certain number of minutes of exercise every day. Right. But for most of us, if we don't have that daily activity in a useful way, we're not going to do it. If you switch from driving to taking transit, you will lose six pounds within the first month. I mean, there's all these studies. And the most interesting one came out after the book. And I'm going to paraphrase. I don't remember it exactly. But they had the the best blind uh, study you can possibly have in China, where it's randomly assigned who is given the, the right to purchase a car and who isn't. And they studied the folks who were given the ability to purchase a car and those who weren't. And for those who were over 50, the people who got cars were uh, 20 pounds overweight within a couple of years. And those who didn't get cars weren't. So (laughs) there you go. And this right now has been focused on the physical health, right? But we know there's significant mental and emotional health consequences as well. Yeah. And whether it's just enough about and I don't talk enough in the book about the incredible uh, loss of life due to air pollution that happens around uh, major roadways. Yeah. And that's that's been more and more discovered lately. But someone I forget the state, but it was just in the news a week ago that oh, it was actually in the UK that someone's death was um, finally attributed to air pollution from from the roadway near their house. And we don't talk about that enough. And then just to finish, brilliant, um, with the, the three things, the environmental argument is a, a little bit counterintuitive because the environmentalist movement in the U.S. and around the world, really, until maybe the 90s, was very much an anti-city movement. And if you look at the roots of it in the U.S. and the Sierra Club and everything else, it's always been an anti-city, pro-suburbs. You know, if you love nature, go move out into nature and be a part of it. And that certainly makes some sense. But Uh, Oh, and I should say that that message only became stronger when we started mapping carbon because people were mapping carbon per square mile. And if you look at a carbon output per square mile map of the U.S., the cities are red hot and the suburbs are cooler and the countryside is, you know, cold. But then another really important economist said, uh, a guy named Fred Bernstein at the Center for Neighborhood Technology in Chicago, he said, hey, we're measuring this the wrong way. We should be looking at, at carbon output per household or per person, not per uh, square mile. And when you map a carbon output per household uh, map, it's exactly the opposite. The cities are dead cold and the suburbs are quite warm and the exurban areas where everyone's driving all the time are bright red. And the message there that, that now more and more environmentalists have told us, as highlighted in this book, Green Metropolis by David Owen, if you love nature, the best thing you, you can do is live far away from it, you know, in the densest, most, you know, transit served, walkable, bikeable city that you can find, because that's how you are going to limit your carbon output. So there's more to say on that topic, but, but essentially, there's kind of a global agreement now that cities are the solution to the climate crisis. And of course, we define urban very loosely in the U.S., and I guess more than half of us now live in urban areas, but I would still say that that 90% of those urban areas are suburban are suburban areas where people are still driving a ton. And it's really the quite limited number of Americans who live in our 
denser, either small and walkable or larger and transit served communities that are having the lightest carbon footprint. So someone in, in New York City burns half the gas of someone in, in you know, Houston. And remarkably, someone in Toronto is burning half as much gas as they are because of the better transit in Toronto. And someone in Europe, in a European city, is half as much again. And someone in um, Hong Kong is half as much again. And this, the, the data I put in, the, in Walkable City is that if, if, if 10 Hong Kongers were to move to New York City, our most walkable place, if 10 Hong Kongers were to move to New York City and try to keep their carbon footprint where it was before they moved, then nine of them would have to stay home all day. <laughs> <laughs> that whole thing about r- flipping the carbon map just by measuring per person, you know, again, is the kind of thing that when you see, you're like, oh, of course, why didn't we start out doing that? But, it, you know, as research gets reported, it's not. It's not always what it appears initially. So I, that, again, a perfect example of what I love about, about your writing is bringing those things to, to our awareness. But in some ways, I suspect that this is kind of preaching to the choir, I would, I would think. I mean, hopefully you're educating and converting people from you know, a way of living they might have had. But even in your work where you talk about, look, millennials will choose, many millennials will just choose a city where they want to live for its livability. And largely because it's walkable, it has transit, it's bike friendly, this kind of thing. And then they'll find a job. And, and I know every community or many communities, they want that. They want that vibe. But of course, it's not, it's not the easiest thing to do. Yeah, and I should say in the, in the 10 years since the book's come out, the millennials have started to make different choices. And I, I don't think, I won't say the book was wrong, but I will say that it didn't pay enough attention to um, some of the other, other deeper underlying issues around the choices we make. And now that the millennials are having kids, they are essentially being forced by the metropolises that they live in to move to the suburbs where, the, where they perceive the schools are better. And, you know, why are people making choices about where they live? Once you're a parent, it's all about your kids. And that means mostly the schools. And we have this unfortunate condition in the US, which is by no means inevitable, but it's the way that, that we do it, that your school is funded by you know, your municipality, typically, maybe it's your county, but something close at hand. And as such, the quality of your school is gonna be a function of the wealth of your municipality. It's not like other countries where the schools are fairly equal for everyone. So, uh, you know, inner city schools have been allowed to get worse and worse. And, you know, it, it feels ungenerous to make the choice to abandon your own neighborhood school if you're living in a, in a you know, older city center. But parents will desperately make the choice that they feel is best for their children. And the circumstances then have caused a bunch of millennials now to move to suburbs they don't want to be in uh, just so their kids can have that, that better school. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Well. As you kind of alluded to, some of the questions I might have asked you, people can watch your TED Talks, they can read your books, they can listen to your interviews or read your other blogs and articles. You're, you're very prolific, and I suggest they do, especially if they're in public office or interested in community service or engineering you know, urban design, these kinds of things, people, I suspect many of the people who are in those latter categories have found your work, at least I hope they have. But let me, let me turn the conversation now to a moment. I'll say this too, in the design of this conversation today. So what we've got left is something called the enlightening lightning round. So a a series of about nine questions on a variety of topics. So that takes 20 ish minutes, writing and creativity, 
that could take 30 minutes. So if we had another 10 to 15 minutes to talk about anything that you are curious about now, anything you're currently researching, anything you've changed your mind about, anything else you want to talk about, what would it be? Well, I think I think we were headed in a certain direction, which is to try to understand why America is this way. <laughs> and, <laughs> and also what we can do about it. The You describe quite naturally, and I think correctly, that most people want to live in walkable environments. And yet so few of us do, right? And even though there's this American myth, or I should say American dream, that's real for many of the house on its own lot in a neighborhood, most people end up with a house on a lot in a subdivision with nothing but other houses around it and the inability to walk to anything. And when polled by the National Association of Realtors, a considerable majority of Americans will tell you they want to live in a house from which they can walk to school, work, jobs, certainly the corner store, you know, to get a can of cat food. And that's unavailable. There's a fewer number of Americans who really want to live in a dense inner city. But frankly, if our suburbs were better organized, that wouldn't be important, right? Um, the way our, our early suburbs grew, and I grew up in one of these suburbs that were the norm before 1950, you know, it, each, each community had its own center. You could walk to the center. That center had a train stop or a significant bus stop that would take you into the inner city where the jobs were concentrated. And uh, that was a very efficient, uh, environmentally sustainable, healthy way to live. What happened was not the advent of the automobile, but the, because you know every nation got automobiles, but the decision to reorient the design of our nation around the presumption that everyone would be driving one. <laughs> that's what happened. And that's resulted in not only, you know, the suburbanization of the country, but then the establishment, both of a whole bunch of laws that made it necessary and impossible to do otherwise, and the establishment of a whole bunch of, of business models. You know, the real estate developer who only makes shopping malls, the banker who only lends out loans for single family homes that have to be grouped into tranches for a secondary market and then re resold so that you can't have an anonymous an anomalous house with a you know that happens to have a store at the bottom of it right so so all these businesses reorganize themselves and then of course the ever increasing demands of traffic because when you design the society to be broken into little pieces and then reconnect it only with the car your streets have to get wider and wider and wider. And the experience of your typical suburban inhabitant is that the problem is traffic and the solution to traffic is more roads, which of course doesn't work because they immediately, because of induced demand, they immediately become congested as they were before or within four years, every new lane mile is just as congested as, on average, is just as congested as what you started with before you widened your road or added that road. It's kind of a self-reinforcing mechanism that's been very hard to turn around. So we have a, an American landscape that doesn't meet American needs, that doesn't meet American wants, that one hopes perhaps a new DOT head who's from a community that has benefited from the work of my colleagues and other new, new urbanists, uh, making them more bikeable, more transit-friendly, more walkable, will reinforce with the upcoming funding from, from there which only has a limited impact. 
But the biggest impediment to making change quickly probably has been local zoning laws. And local zoning laws have been shaped around, and by the way, they grew. there's an incredibly important book called The Color of Law. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's one of the best-selling it's one of the best-selling planning books, and rightly so has been for the few years since it became known. And it came out maybe four years ago. I believe it's by Richard Rothstein. It's called The Color of Law. And it shows how zoning in the U.S. grew out of, I should say, land you know, uh, use-based zoning, which is what we have, right? Land use-based zoning in the U.S., as it pertains to residential communities, pretty much grew out of and was the mature maturation of race-based zoning. <laughs> and that the single-family zoning category was created, uh, and in many places explicitly so, as a way to, uh, to sidestep and have the same outcome as the race-based zoning laws that were becoming illegal due to, so, to the civil rights movement. I, I just want to jump in here for a moment and say I had never heard that. But it doesn't surprise me as I have watched other things like the documentary, The 13th, about how inequality has been systematized. And it's, you know, in some ways it's just morphed to become less visible or more. It's just this cultural incarnation's acceptable form. Yeah. That's really remarkable. There's a, this is not my focus, uh, although I've become quite interested in it, but there's certainly a very uh, important conversation that needs to be had about what that means in terms of racial justice, white supremacy, and uh, reparations, in fact, because the the stated purpose of the book is to demonstrate that the government had a role in the creation of the landscape that has essentially disenfranchised uh, people of color, right? Oh, yeah. Like, I've heard about this in Detroit primarily, like as a great example if you can't prove that the federal government had that role, then you can't demonstrate the need for reparations or some other legal remedy. However, where it is relevant to my work in particular is just to acknowledge that we have zoning regimes in most of our cities that are quite strange, quite unnatural, and by no means inevitable. And that, in fact, by beginning to undermine in, in ways that would not hurt the quality of communities in any way, that would benefit the quality of communities, by beginning to undermine the single-family zoning laws that cover the majority of zoned land in the United States, we can have a profound impact on the quality of life of, our, of these communities. You know, we have a tremendous housing crisis in most places in this country, and it's a function of the fact that we make it so hard to build any form of density on most of our land. Even Trump has talked about this when he fought back and said, I've, you know, I've preserved your, your leafy single-family suburbs. He didn't really know what he was talking about, but the, the changes that some communities are enacting that we'll see if there's any federal leadership on this, but the changes that many communities are enacting is simply to say, hey, you can put a duplex on, on this property. Or, you know, if you, if you want to have a an apartment house by the transit stop, you should be allowed to do that. In many of the communities that I work in, it's a simple switch to say you can build a granny flat in your backyard, right? You can put an apartment above your garage. This is illegal in so many places. And when enabling legislation like they've done in Los Angeles makes it possible, thousands of people do it. And of course, the great shock, not a shock to us, is that when you allow that, the neighborhood values go up 
because all of a sudden your lot is worth a lot that can hold two homes and, and not just one. By allowing people to do more on their properties, you actually you know, tremendously increase the value of those properties. So it's, it's an upzoning that, that benefits everyone. And someone, you know, this is just a, a plain old tweet that wasn't that groundbreaking, but it just caught my eye and I keep thinking about it. And it describes the neighborhood I live in. I just read it a, a couple of weeks ago. This woman tweeted, you know, I think those people who are fighting the addition of multifamily housing uh, to their neighborhoods would really benefit from experiencing what it's like to have people out on your sidewalks on occasion near where you live. And what a wonderful thing that is. <laughs> <laughs> and I live on Beacon Street in Brookline, Massachusetts, which is a very urban suburb that is essentially surrounded by Boston, but it's its own town called Brookline. The train is going by in the window as I, as I speak. And I'm in an apartment in a, a whole bunch of uh, triple, they're not triple deckers, but three-story apartment houses that are on this side of the street. Across the street, there's a couple 10-story buildings. One block behind me, it's all two to three-story houses, many of which are multifamily. But this is one of the most valuable neighborhoods in America. I'm fortunate that I can afford to live here. And we know our neighbors and we, the sidewalks are always full of people. And it's just, it's a delight as opposed to these typical suburban subdivisions where you don't see a soul all day long and it's just garage doors facing the sidewalk, if you have a sidewalk. Well, and, and, and I know we could go in a totally other direction, uh, impelled by this course, you know, of inquiry about, I think, and I go back to this about the emotional or the mental aspects of this, where we segment ourselves, separate ourselves. We don't get the motion, you know, we're not moving. We don't get the health benefits from that. And just what that, what that does for or loneliness, you know, and these kinds of things, we're not even seeing, let alone interacting with other people. And we've seen from agriculture, anytime you monocrop, anytime you take a piece of the earth and you make it just one thing and you lose the, the diversity and the variety and all of this, it's like it, it, uh, it dies ultimately. The nutrients and the life d diminish. Yeah, well, we, we use that analogy a lot. I mean, monocultures are not healthy. And, you know, healthy cities have a little bit of everything and, or a lot of some things and a little bit of others. But, but the, the active choice was made, and it's remarkable, in the 1939 World's Fair, Futurama, right, that was in, uh, uh, on Long Island, as featured in Men in Black, right? That's where they go to launch the spaceship. And there was this GM-sponsored exhibit, the city of the future, Futurama. Norman Bel Geddes, one of the leading planners of the time, wrote the text for the promotional film. And I had the exact quote in Walkable City Rules, uh, and I'll get it wrong, but I'm just, it's just so head-scratching. It, it, he, he says in this, in this movie voiceover, for the greater convenience of the population, places of work, and living and shopping have all been separated from each other. And I'm like, what the hell are you thinking? Like, where's the logic? <laughs> How could you have even uttered those words without considering what it meant? How can it possibly be more convenient to segregate the different aspects of your life into different places that you have to commute between by any vehicle? Although they were celebrating the automobile, but, but how does that make sense? And I would. I wish you know I could speak to his ghost and find out where he was from there. Le Corbusier, the famous French architect, planner, and great visionary of the modernist movement, the most important modernist that lived, he was much more explicit 
And he said in a quote that we have in Suburban Nation, how we will separate places of work from places from living, of living. All of this will necessitate engines, tires, gears, and roadways creating work for all, right? So there's a deeper conversation saying we're going to build a new economy around creating this transportation system that's new, which is kind of what we did. In, you know, they didn't do it in Europe, but we did it here. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, no doubt. No doubt about it. I. So before we wrap, here's... Here's what I'm proposing is I know before we started recording, you had some questions or maybe suggestions for me, and I I definitely want to get to that, but, and we can go there if you want. Otherwise, what I propose is that we leave that to the end, move efficiently through these next two sections. If you don't mind, let me complete a couple of thoughts. Yeah, 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 please. I wanted to say that the things that communities are doing now to make themselves better, more sustainable, to impact climate and people's quality of life are essentially the the low-hanging fruit, eliminating single-family zoning, which simply means allowing multifamily to arrive slowly as it will when you put it in these neighborhoods. Secondly, eliminating on-site parking requirements because developers, be they large or small, know what parking they need and uh, they don't need the city artificially mandating people bringing more cars into their communities, which end up just gumming up the streets actually don't benefit anyone uh, if you ask for more than people will bring on their own. Those two things would have a super profound impact. And then what a number of cities are already doing, including Massachusetts, just passed a law in its budget yesterday to do this, which is to actually require upzoning around transit stations. So if you have a significant transit station, be it train or bus in your community or many of them, the areas immediately surrounding those stops should be allowed to have have considerably more more housing. Those are changes that are happening in a lot of communities and could have a dramatic change if picked up at the national level. Then the second question is, you know, what can private individuals do? And I think that I'm particularly interested in talking to someone who has access to resources to say, you know, what what are some of the most forward things that are happening? Robert Davis back in 1979, went to my mentors, Andres Duani and Elizabeth Plater Zyberg, and said, I want, to make a, I want to make a new town. And I want it to be like the towns I grew up in and loved. And they developed Seaside, which has all sorts of flaws in terms of being a model because it's a resort and people loved it so much that it's become incredibly expensive and all the other things that happened to places that people love. This the Seaside in Oregon? No, this is called Seaside in the Florida Panhandle. It's in Panama City, Florida. But if you, it, it's, it's now on the Rand McNally map. Even though it is not a municipality, it's on the Rand McNally map because people love it so much. It's called Seaside. It's near Panama City. And it's a new town that became a poster child for this new movement and was so important in allowing people to realize what was possible. And, uh, you know, the question is, what is the next... What is the next community that will have a, as equally a profound impact? You know, Seaside and its progeny, but it really started with Seaside, changed the practice of planning in this country in a profound way. One, one project. So the question is, what is the next project? I should say that there's one that's very important that I'm not involved in, but super interested in, that's called Cul-de-Sac, hilarious name, and it's being developed in Tempe, designed by some friends of mine at a firm called Opticos, it's a car-free community. 
And they've, they've done the right thing in publicizing it extremely well, high profile, great PR. And so they have a regional or even a national audience of people who want to live in the way that some folks do, you know, in, in the Netherlands and other places who want to live with the cars at the periphery. So in fact, you can be there and have a car, but many people will choose not to. And the cars are parked at the perimeter and it's an entirely pedestrian. When it's done, it'll be an entirely pedestrian community. I'm very upset that I was not asked to design this. And <laughs> I'm, I'm joking, but, but you know, this thing happened without me. Oh my God, and I, you know, I'm the walkability guy. I, I think that there's a market nationally for these to sprout up in every major metropolis. And uh, if I had resources right now, beyond my, my current ones, I would be creating a national model going from city to city and making walkable new neighborhoods. And I, I think it's a, a, a tremendous opportunity. Now, I should say that's my advice for someone who wants to invest in making a real difference. Separate from that, at the government level, because a lot of the people that I deal with are mayors or other city officials or foundations within city centers. Most of the work that I do in my firm is not creating new places, although I do plenty of that, um, but trying to improve existing downtowns. And I've done what I call walkability studies now for 15 different cities. And some of them have been profoundly re re reshaped around uh, those plans. I think every major city in the US needs a walkability study, which to explain it in 60 seconds or less, Basically, we redesign every single street in the downtown using only paint, right? Understanding that we're not going to spend the money on moving any curbs, except with rare exception. Using only paint, we redesign every street in the downtown to have no more lanes than it needs, no wider lanes than it needs, bike lanes wherever they can, can be uh, in the right place. Of course, ample pedestrian facilities. And for a really limited investment, a city can profoundly change the walkability of its downtown. And that's, that's something that I'm looking forward to promulgating around the U.S. in the next decade or so. But these studies where I've done them in places like Cedar Rapids and uh, Oklahoma City have led to new you know, urban environments that, that have been key factors, you know, certainly not the only factor, but key factors in bringing those downtowns back. And so we need to see more of that happening as well. The thing I love about that is it's it's so comprehensible, right? Like you talk about traffic engineers will always say, we need a traffic study. We need a traffic study. It's like the, the hammer, the only tool they have, right? But until now, as I understand it, basically no one's been talking about walkability studies. And now not only is it available, but we know that the result of a successfully executed plan you know, that probably started with a walkability study is exactly what we've talked about, about improved health, improved economics, and a better environment. Yeah, no, and, and by the way, it, since I wrote Walkable City uh, and moved on to Walkable City Rules, I added two more categories to that list of three, which are community and equity. Uh, I had previously grouped community kind of under health, right, and social health, but there's so much evidence that walkable places have healthier culture and more socializing and, uh, as you suggested, surrounding mental health, more, more togetherness, right? More, more neighborliness. Secondarily, it can be amply demonstrated how the automobile has been a vehicle, pun intended, for increased segregation, increased 
class-based impacts and race-based impacts. If you look at who's dying as pedestrians, and by the way, that's gone up 50% in the last 10 years, the number of people killed by cars as pedestrians, mostly due to SUVs, by the way. If you look at who's dying, it's incredibly inequitous, let's just say, (laughs) inequitable, whatever the word is. And of course, who makes use of transit and who are the people that benefit when you invest in walkable solutions? Um, there, there are, you know, a- any effort to make our country more equitable is going to focus more on solutions that don't require driving. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm just, I keep thinking, and, and you've probably thought on this, but about how, you know, whatever it is, Tree City USA, which you write about how that's kind of crap <laughs> anyway, but there's also a small start. Yeah, it's a start. It's a start. But then there's also, you know, the B Corp certification. So there's these labels that certain organizations endow, you know, certain buildings or, or other organizations with, have you given thought to establishing like a, a walkable city USA cert, like a label or something for certain communities? It's not into that, but (laughs) there's a, that's an interesting idea. There's a very excellent organization called America walks that I think uh, would be the ones to do that. And Mike McGinn, the former mayor of Portland, Oregon is running that organization and he's great. And he, that would be the group to do that. And next time I speak to him, I'll, I'll bring that up. What a fun idea. Yeah. I, I love that. And, and it, yeah, it seems like it's a pretty easy checklist, like a walkability study. Anyway, that's fun. Okay. Well, if, if you need to do a walkability study to qualify, I'd be all for it. <laughs> there you, that's what I'm talking about. That's how these things often work. I think. Yeah. Okay. So are you good to jump into the enlightening lightning round? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So again, this is a, series of brief questions. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. My aim for the most part is to ask the question and just stand aside. But you want maybe a one sentence answer or okay. you want a paragraph answer? Whatever feels right to you. A lot of them are. Well, I, like, I like to answer each question for 10 minutes, so it won't be a lightning round. <laughs> okay. It might be a one question lightning round. All right, here we go. Question one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a infinite possibility. All right. Question two. Here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Oh my. Well, I'm going to get very specific to my profession, but very few people understand that we can have the cities we want and the city streets that we want, and we can decide how much traffic we want to have. Okay. Question number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? (laughs) This is hard. (laughs) Can we walk there? (laughs) I love it. I'm often saying that to my, to my wife or children. What was it that Stephen Wright said? Everywhere is walking distance. If you've got the time. (laughs) Oh, that's good. He also said, I spilled spot remover on my dog. Now he's gone. By the way, I saw Stephen Wright in a club when he was an unknown uh, in, in Boston. And we went up to him afterwards and said, you're going to be famous. And he said, he mumbled something. <laughs> oh, wow. That's awesome. Question number four. What book, other than your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? So I'm, I'm amazed I haven't said it yet in this interview, but the, the best planning book of all time that you're probably aware of is The Life and Death of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. 
and that is the book that began the the reformation of the planning profession off of its mistaken path in the early 60s. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, number five. So you have traveled a lot. What's something you do when you travel? You know, back in the good old days where we still did that kind of thing? <laughs> or so what's something you do when you travel or something you take with you to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Well, one thing I really enjoy is packing super, super light. I found it's incredibly liberating to do that. I also shower the night before, and every time I travel, I see how fast I can get from being asleep to at the gate. That's a fun thing to do. <laughs> wow. Additionally, because this is really up my alley and something that I uh, am a, a real lover of, I like to, when I, when I go to a city, I will have my map, you know, or my phone map or whatever, but I will just absolutely get lost and then try to find my way back with or without the map, using the map if I need to. But the, the main advice I would give to your uh, listeners, which I'm surprised more people don't do, which I guess you could call travel like a city planner, is before I go to any city for any reason, I get on the Google Maps. And of course, it depends on the city. But I, let's say it's a European city. I find the best part of that city, which is not hard to do. I find that the medieval part of the city, the part that has the cranky streets, and of course, different parts of the world, there's different ways to identify it. But it's not that hard with a little bit of research to end up in the part of the city that is the most delightful, most walkable. And you'd be amazed to the degree, to the degree that travel guides and other sources will not send you there. And how many times have you or someone you know ended up in a hotel that's just not in the part of town that you want to be in? And it is so easy and rewarding to spend some time on Google Maps, find that location. And then, of course, when you do your hotel or Airbnb search or whatever you're doing, to limit yourself to that location. That's awesome. That's fun. Okay. Question number six. What's something you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? <laughs> How about what I need to stop doing? We'll count that. Um, I'm addicted to Twitter. And I think that's had a real negative impact on me. So one, one of my New Year's resolutions was to not look at it before bed, not to look at it when I wake up, not to look at it until noon. That's a very small thing. But I think that to get very contemporary and in the moment and, you know, what's having an impact on Americans now that's most relevant, I do think that our attention spans are getting shorter and our ability to focus is getting weaker. And, you know, now a, a one-page article seems long to me, and that's just really bad. So I'm making a real effort to limit my social media exposure. That's kind of a common uh, thing that people talk about. But I have to say, I think it's one of the most important things we can do. Yeah. Number seven, what's one thing you wish every American knew? <laughs> well, I'm playing to type, Brilliant, but I, I would say that most Americans don't know that they would have a higher quality of life and a happier, healthier, wealthier life if they were to move to a place where they didn't need to drive everywhere, period. And that that actually, you know, the the you don't need a big yard or a yard at all if you live in a properly designed community. That if you're not paying for that car or that second or that third car, you can have a much better apartment or or home. Or that your quality of life in an urban apartment 
where you don't need to have a car, but everything is at, at easy reach is much higher than having your own big chunk of property somewhere where you actually have no access to anything without using the car as your prosthetic device. Yeah. Question number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? (laughs) There's a whole bunch of cliches uh, that I could use that you've heard before, but I would say that, that I've, I think managed to limit my compulsion to always be right to my professional life. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that sounds like a wise man. <laughs> what was that about? Oh, that was something I heard about. Anyway, I'll, I'll pass. Okay. Last, last one here. Uh, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? I'm not sure if it's useful. I think one interesting thing I've learned about money is that once you have more of it, you never want to have less of it. And so I would say, try to delay the moment in your life when you get more of it. (laughs) I know a lot of people, all they need is more of it, right? A lot of people want more of it. A lot of people actually need more of it. But your lifestyle adjusts to the amount of money that you have and you can be happy, you know, within certain limits, you can be happy, self-sufficient and self-sustaining at a relatively low income, a relatively moderate income or quite a high income. But at every point, you feel like anything lower is unacceptable and you can be much more creative on a lower income. Higher income and your expectation of maintaining it really ties your hands, right? So at the point in your life where you're charting your path, where you're not sure yet what you're going to be doing, and you want to have the greatest access to the greatest opportunities, it's actually good to not be thinking about how much you're earning or to be locked into a certain expectation. Just to give an example, and and I'm fine with this, but and no one's asking me, but like I couldn't join the Biden administration now because it would tremendously cut my income. <laughs> so I'm not willing to do that. I wish I was. So it's a bit of a handcuff to the the fact that just as, as animals, we, you know, the animal side of our brains is, makes it very hard for us to accept less than we've grown accustomed to. And, and so there's a danger in growing accustomed to, to, to too much. I had another piece of it. Oh yeah. And of course, the other thing about money that most people should know, but not everyone does is that what matters isn't beyond a certain threshold. What matters isn't how much you have. It's the ratio of how much you have to how much you spend. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I think what people who earn less might not know uh, is that people who earn more than them probably have as much economic anxiety, you know, past a certain threshold where you're struggling to live. People who earn, you know, twice as much often have just as much economic anxiety as people who earn half as much because they've, again, adjusted their outflow and somehow naturalized it and said, this is inevitable. And, you know, you can make the choice. And I love those guys like Mr. Money Mustache and the other people who specialize in spending as little money as possible and and just really enjoying the bargains that you can actually earn more and not change your lifestyle and be perfectly happy. So it's really a matter of expectations. And, um, you know, I was brought up in a family which money was just never really much discussed and we were comfortable, but we weren't rich. We weren't poor. 
And I try not to think about it too much. But even I have found it easy to get trapped into this feeling, you know, more money good, less money bad. And what really matters is the ratio of income to output. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's something I think many people end up learning only through experience. But as we know, the wise learn from the experience of others. <laughs> so, no, thank you for that. Okay, if so, I do have just a few more questions about writing and creativity. Okay, so the last part of the interview here, just a few questions about writing and creativity. I understand that you wrote much or maybe all of Walkable City in Italy. At least the first half. The first half. So I know it's it's hard enough to write a book when we're at home with all of the comforts and conveniences and maybe in familiar and routine places. So maybe my the question we can start with here is how did you organize your life and your time <laughs> to right. be productive in a foreign country and get this book, at least the first half of this book written? I find writing really hard. I guess I enjoy it. People ask me, do you enjoy writing? And I say, I enjoy having written. Like, I'm really proud of writing. And, and unlike some tortured artists, maybe this is just evidence that I'm not that good. I really enjoy reading my own writing. <laughs> and I enjoy, you know, the sense of accomplishment that comes from finishing something or even finishing, a, yeah, even finishing a, a page, right? But the actual act of writing is very hard for me. I think that one of the greatest resources that we have that is least recognized and most important is focus and concentration. There's a great book about this. I think it's called The World Behind Your Head that I read recently. And it, it said things like, you know, what are, what are people actually paying for when they join the airport lounge? Uh, what they're paying for is silence <laughs> or, uh, you know, peace and the ability to kind of be alone with your own thoughts. But it is very hard to, to, for me to muster up the concentration to spend hours writing. And so the environment is super important to me. I find that getting out of my normal environment is extremely useful. I find that reading fiction while I write nonfiction is really useful. Like I'll stop reading. I'll read a ton of nonfiction because I have to, to build up the the base of material for a book. But then when I start writing the book, I'm done with that. And when I'm not working and I am reading, I will limit myself to fiction because fiction is about the beauty of the writing. And good nonfiction is informed by the, to a degree, you know, you don't want to be Faulkner out there, but, the, to, but to a degree, good nonfiction writing can be tremendously improved by having the rhythms and the the analogies and the, you know, what's the word I want, kind of the, the poetry of good nonfiction writing influencing. And I think this is probably a bit of a, of a, of a lie, but I do tell people that I prefer to be in a place where English isn't spoken. <laughs> it might be a lie that it helps me. It's not a lie that it's true. Like I really, I do speak Italian. Okay. Uh, enough to function in that society. But not having to speak as much English while I'm writing in English, I find somehow cleanses the palate a little bit. And also, I think, you know, like music, foreign languages make the brain more flexible in the way that it functions. Going to Italy was a function of a number of things, certainly, certainly to be inspired uh, to write about cities. Uh, being in Rome and other places like it is a, a great thing. <clears throat> I also was fortunate enough to get 
either fellowships or, you know, nice places to stay at various academies like the American Academy in Rome that is just a place where people go to get creative work done that is an incredible boon. If you want to support a great organization with an incredible history, the American Academy in Rome is a wonderful thing. So it was a function of that as well. But yeah, I mean, it's particularly hard when you have a family to focus. And I should say that in, in, in some ways, the circumstance around writing Walkable City was less than ideal. Uh, it was harder on my wife than it was for me. But we had two quite small children and we were in various apartments in Rome and uh, Genoa. And uh, she basically had to take the kids out of the house every day just so I could write. So, so we made a deal that I would, I would write from uh, breakfast until a late lunch, and then I was done. So another, another thing to say about writing is if you can write for more than four or five hours a day, you're superhuman because it's, you know, it, it, it's hard to sustain. I know some writers write all day long, but I don't, I don't see how they do that. So I'll, I'll write for, for half the day and, and then take the rest of the day off. Or do something else that's completely different, like draw. Who's been influential in your development as a writer, either directly as a teacher, maybe somebody even from grade school, you know, junior high, high school, college, or maybe somebody that you never met, but they've inspired and influenced you through their writing or some other way? So Jane Jacobs, who I mentioned, who wrote The Death and Life of Great American Cities, was principally a writer. She wasn't a trained planner. She wasn't a trained architect. She was a housewife who was super smart and moderately well-educated, but she had such an authoritative voice. And for someone at a time when, you know, women weren't considered as much authorities as they should have been, and where she didn't have the credentials, for her in the early 60s, late 50s even, to be writing about cities with absolute confidence was really uh, wonderful to read. And just the, the, the trenchant quality of some of her prose is really inspiring. I mentioned earlier, and it's, it's pretty true, that the, the funny story around Suburban Nation is, is that Andres Duani would give these talks that if you were to listen to them and watch them, you felt that they would, it, you, could just, you could just transcribe them and they'd be a book. What wasn't obvious at that moment when I thought that was that, in fact, so much of what he was doing was visual with his images and charisma of which he has so much. And actually, when I wrote down the, the words he was saying, it was barely good English, let alone good writing. So the attempt to turn, the attempt to create a writing voice that was the equivalent of his speaking voice is kind of what created my voice <laughs> on the page. And so I'm tremendously indebted uh, to him. And I mean, he would tell you he couldn't have written it that way, but he he created such a effect with his words and personality and images that turning trying to turn that into prose was the formulation of my of of my voice wow when you're writing how aware are you or what's your sense of connection with a reader in the act of writing and do you imagine a a specific person or some kind of a composite reader or something else what's that like for you that's a really great question. I never think of any specific reader at all. I write to entertain myself, if I can say that. And I, yeah, I mean, my, my goal is to put the words on a, the page in a way that I find compelling. 
And I should say that I don't think I'm an unusual person. Like I, I think that that my tastes, sensibilities, and just way of thinking are not that different from your typical reader. So in satisfying my own needs, I'm hopefully satisfying others' needs. My ideal reader is pretty much someone who reads the New Yorker magazine, if I can say that. <laughs> Although I don't put umlauts over my repeated O's as they do, or put two S's in the word focusing. Uh, otherwise, our style guide is the same. But the 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 thing that people I think maybe don't talk about enough is is tempo and rhythm in writing. And there's clearly sentences that that are you know you can have two sentences that say the same thing, and one of them's a joy to read, and the other one isn't just because of the the tempo, just because of the number of beats in that sentence. You know when you're creating a list of things with commas between them, often four is the right number or two is the right number and you don't know it till you read it and hear it. And so much of my writing, I would say 90% of my writing is reading the sentences I've just written before the sentence I'm about to write in order to create the connection that feels proper, both conceptually, but also rhythmically. Interesting. And when you say reading, do you mean reading aloud or just reading silently to yourself? In a clinch, I'll even read it out loud, but normally just just silently. I should say I've had the great pleasure of, and I had to earn it by interviewing, or I should say by auditioning, but I had the, had the pleasure of doing my two last books as audiobooks and being the reader. Wow. And that was a really great experience also. Uh, I was a DJ in college, so I'm comfortable at the mic. But it's a you, you learn quickly that reading and writing are, are different skills. <laughs> yes. Yeah, for sure. Well, then I had someone, someone on the show, I believe it was Donald Robertson who wrote How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, told me that he actually paid someone to come read him his manuscript. So he, and he would just sit there. You know, he, was, he teaches about stoicism. So <laughs> there's a part of this perhaps that's really appropriate. But he would just sit there and listen and occasionally interject and correct things that he thought didn't have that kind of tempo and rhythm? That's a really conscientious way to do it. Because, I mean, it's just another step that we could take as writers that I didn't take, and I probably don't want to spend the time on. But honestly, a good writer will really want to know how other people pace what they say. I should also say that I've had great editors. Yeah, that's that helped. Readers probably don't have any idea the difference that an editor really can make for their experience and understanding. Yeah, I mean, if you've if you've never had a great editor, it's like better than sex. I mean, when I was when I was working on Suburban Nation, you know, everything I wrote, Andres edited and Liz edited, and then Ethan, Ethan Nazowski, he's since moved on, but Ethan Nazowski was the editor at Ferrar Strauss. And every edit that Andres and Liz made frustrated me because they were changing what I wanted to say in some way. And of course, I was trying to lay out their ideas. So they were right. And it was a job that I had to do to uh, interpret what they, what they changed. Every change that Ethan made, I was like, yes, yes, yes. It was so beautiful to see, to see, to see my, my, uh, my writing get even better. I said to him once, I said, Ethan, you're an amazing writer. He goes, no, I'm just an amazing editor. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely a, a, a skill, no quite, like really special skill. So writing a book can be very daunting. 
challenging on a lot of different levels. What I wonder is if you have now that you've you've written a number of books, if you have arrived at a process, something that you could fairly briefly articulate just how do you do you start with a thesis? Do you start with a question you're trying to answer? How do you research? How do you organize what you find? How do you structure the thing? Just all the way from there to the time that you're handing that manuscript to an editor or when they're working, maybe I know editors often come in the process before a finished manuscript, but what's your process like from start to finish to get a book done? Well, I don't know if I'm the right person to teach anyone on this. I mean, I did study like anyone who went to college, you know, how to make a good essay and using outlines and that sort of thing. I have to say, I kind of stopped using outlines for the various pieces I write because I feel like I kind of know in my head where they're going. I do think that, and this is speaking kind of at a more fundamental level, I'll only write a book or a piece of a book when there's something that I feel I really have to say and I can't stop myself from, from putting it down on paper. Like the reason that, that Walkable City Rules came along, in fact, my more recent book was because I'm, I was just, oh my God, you know, people are still getting this stuff wrong and it's so easy and the answers are so clear. And why don't more people know this, you know, and this, this burning desire to, to communicate something. If, if you have that, then all the rest is of, of you know, statistically insignificant importance. <laughs> if you have something you really want to say and arguments you really want to make or arguments you've been making but just haven't put down on paper, that's the best kind of book, right? And no one sets out to say, I want to write a book. They set out to say, I want people to know this thing. And that's how the book happens. Yeah, that, that's definitely my experience. I've had more than a few guests who said, I never meant to write a book. You know, but I shared something. Well, no, at a certain point, you make the decision, particularly if you're trying to get a contract. And by the way, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if the world needs more books. I think, I think the world, the world needs the right books. And nowadays, people are reading less, and there are so many books out there. And essentially, anyone who wants to create a book can, in one form or the other. I do give the advice, and it's a little bit, a little bit kind of mercenary, but. I ask people who tell me, because I, I get emails like this fairly frequently. They say, I want to write a book about this or that. And, and I say, okay, what's, what's going to cause this book to be read, right? What, what about this book, actually about what's in it, but about what form it takes is going to cause people to, write, to read it. And so a lot of that is about finding and selling the right publisher who has a marketing wing. And finding the right publisher usually means finding an agent. And, you know, I didn't know this when I started, but if you want to have a book that is widely read, then it probably needs to come from a limited number of publishing houses. And access to those houses is through a limited number of agents. And the, really the first step is creating a package, an outline, and a, a sample chapter, and a, you know, brief description of what the book's about and all of that and finding an agent that will take you on. And I think that that's, um, you know, if you want your book read, that is that path. So then the final part of this is, you know, many people, if they do set their sights on writing a book, publishing a book, they often see that as the finish line and heaven knows that is its own, you know, that is its own, uh, victory. But 
I think those people will be disappointed if no one ever reads that book. If no one learns about it, if no one cares about it, nobody buys it, tells their friends and so forth. So this leads to the question perhaps of marketing, of promotion. What have you learned about marketing and promoting a book that has been useful to you? Well, I think you, you, you know, cause I've done it all. And I think that there are certain force multipliers. Is that the term force multipliers that are thresholds for new levels of, of readership. So unlike, you know, people don't do book tours much anymore. They found that book tours aren't particularly effective at selling books unless you're already famous and people show up because they want to see you. Right. We have such a dedicated audience or fans then it really makes sense to do book tours. But as long as 10 years ago, I was told book tours aren't really a thing anymore. But I'm an author who, because of the work that I do in cities, I'm giving lectures all over the place all the time. And those do sell books. But a typical lecture to 200 people might sell 30 books. And if you do that day after day after day in city after city after city, pretty soon you've sold a lot of books. But I would say that, you know, the hundred lectures I've given since I wrote Walkable City have probably sold a fraction of the books that my one TED Talk has sold, right? And the the black box that is TED is an is a extreme mystery. How do you do a TED Talk that becomes the headliner on their webpage, you know, for example? I can't offer any insight there, but I can tell, I can tell folks that if if your goal is to get an and this is a bit of an answer about, you know, why write a book? Like maybe a book isn't the right vehicle. If your goal is to get certain ideas out into the world, I would say, you know, a great videotape talk can be more effective than a book. But certainly if you've already got a book or you're trying to promote a book, developing in concert your speaking ability and your package that you offer to people who might have you speak, including TED or similar venues, is super important. And being a good speaker and being a good writer are two entirely different things that are, uh, and speaking, a lot of people think that if they have a lot, a good thing to say, and they're reasonably articulate, that they can just get up and give talks that will be successful. But it's really its own skill set that you have to learn and practice and, and make an effort at. But for me in particular, the TED Talks were incredible force multipliers, honestly, both for my books and for my practice. A lot of the, a lot of the work that I do is because, as a, in my firm, is because someone's seen the TED Talks. And of course, there's, there's other talks too, but, but you know, that, that isn't necessarily helpful to someone who isn't currently doing a lot of public speaking. But, but honestly, I think it, it depends what kind of writer you want to be. If you're principally writing because you have an idea that you wish more people shared, then you need to work every cylinder. And one of those is public speaking, and you should take the time to become good at it. Another another important lesson I learned from Andres and have experienced my, on my own is that there's nothing wrong. In fact, there's something very right with giving the same talk over and over and over and over and over and over again. And uh, Andres gave his Towns versus Sprawl talk probably, you know, 500 times over 10 years. And every time he made it sound fresh and he made it sound like 
these ideas and kind of just come to him. And it's almost, it's disingenuous, right? It's, you're not being honest with your audience. <laughs> you're probably not being honest with your audience if you're telling them something that you've done, that you've told a hundred different audiences over the last X number of years, excitedly, like you've just discovered it, but that's the way to give a good talk. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, and that's really in some ways probably no different from a musician performing the same song. It's like year you want, after you want year. Freebird, but but the but but there's a difference, which is that music, everyone knows that a musician is a performer. But if you're a, a professional or an intellectual or someone who's trying to share ideas, you are turned off by the idea of thinking that you're a performer and not just a thinker or a uh, professional. So you have to get over that hump. And honestly, I don't do it enough, but my talks have slowly evolved over 20 years and they frankly haven't changed all that much. Uh, and in any given year, they, they change very little. And the reason is, and it's easy to forget this, that every new audience hasn't heard it before, right? And you should treat each new audience like it was your first talk because for them it is. And that's hard because it's not honest uh, and it's not necessar necessarily gratifying to consider yourself a performer. But if you do that, you'll do a much better job and you'll be more effective in spreading your message. You know, you know what this makes me think about is two things. One is, I forget the preacher's name, Russell Conway. I just Googled it. Who delivered this talk, Acres of Diamonds? Yeah, I don't in, know. In the religious, this was like back in the 1800s. But I think I read once about this guy. I believe he delivered this talk literally 5,000 times. And then it became, you know, a pamphlet and the word spread and all this. So, you know, there are people that take that out to an extreme for sure. But the other one that's also kind of in this philosophical religious vein is the philosopher Alan Watts. I read his autobiography and he talked about how he saw himself as a spiritual entertainer. Like mm -hmm. he embraced the persona, the beard, the robe you know, and so forth. So there's something to be said. But what you said about if you have a burning desire to say something, to communicate something, you know, a book might just be one form. Speaking is another form. Videos are another form. But I think there's something really valuable about that because in some of the work I do where people, they want to write, they want to write. They, I think in many cases, they don't even necessarily know why they want to write, you know, they but be what you're saying is, is awesome. That's right. They want to be a writer or they want to have written a book, you know, that kind of thing. So this is, I think this is all for anybody who wants to write. I hope this is really useful insight that you're providing from the real world experience of decades doing this. So why are you so interested? Are you doing a book? Have you done a book? I am. I've written one book about my dad. It was really a collection of stories I have. And I've written another book. I haven't published it yet. Uh, I'm offering it now as an online course. And then I'm just fascinated by language. I'm fascinated by creativity, by writing, human interaction. You know, so it's just, it's something that to be honest, I've said for a long time, I don't know what else to do with my life, <laughs> you know, but ask questions like this and share what I find. But I, I believe it's more empowering to say, I don't think there's anything I'd rather do than have these kinds of inquiries. You know, in fact, I divided my reading list not long ago into authors living and dead. And it's like, oh, I want to talk to these people while they're still alive, you know? <laughs> so glad, glad I made the cut. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah. So this is this has been a ton of fun for me. I hope I hope it has for you. I'm grateful that you're doing the work you are. I'm definitely going to research some of what we talked about, like cul-de-sac. I am interested in your course at Harvard. Uh, maybe I'll join you for that when it resumes. 
know, you seem like someone who has a lot of different interests, which we all should have. So I don't know to what degree the creation of physical community is a priority for you. But I would be remiss in my duties as a planner to not make it very clear that I'm offering to work with you to create a car-free community somewhere in America. And uh, we together, we could do something spectacular. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I'm not even sure what to do with that, but I, that's something I'd like to talk with you about more when, you know, privately. It's very interesting. It becomes a priority to you. You know, if, if the creation of physical community is on your, your bucket list, right? Because some people care about that, other people don't. But if it's on your bucket list, then let's pursue it. And uh, you're welcome to take some time to consider it before you before we reconvene. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, to this point, it hasn't been, but I'm interested. I mean, I've I've put my toe in the water a little bit here in Salt Lake City with things like restorative justice and how can we live, you know, more harmoniously, more equitably. So that it's very intriguing, and and I definitely want to keep learning with learning from you and staying connected with you. So. That's Good. that's that's awesome. Well, thank you for what you do and for the attention. It's nice to be wanted. No, it's my pleasure. So final advice, encouragement, anything, whether it's related to writing, creativity, promotion, new urbanism, anything, design, anything that you would leave people listening with as kind of an uplifting conclusion to this. Well, the uplifting changes what I was about to say. But <laughs> that's the, fine. Let's start with what you were going to say. <laughs> well, no, I think I think that about once a month, I get a tweet or an email from someone who says, I read Walkable City or Suburban Nation, and now I can't stand where I live. Thank you for making me miserable. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I think a lot of people are trapped in their environment for a number of reasons. And our goal as designers and folks who do what, what I do, and by the way, we collect under a, uh, an organization called the Congress for New Urbanism. If you're interested in this stuff, cnu.org is our corner pub. I mean, it's where we all go and we convene and we share ideas. And the Congress has a charter that's called the Charter of New Urbanism. But the the degree to which people feel trapped. Oh, what I was going to say is through this through this work that we all do together. Our, you know, our mission is to create more places that are more livable and to make them more attainable to more people. Right. But understanding that you may not have a choice. I think a lot of people don't understand or don't fully appreciate that they have more choice, they may have more choice than they think, and that the sacrifices they may have to make to live in a more walkable environment are not as great as they think they are and are certainly outweighed by positives that they have not yet considered. And um, uh, that anyone who, not anyone, but for many of us who, who long for a more connected a more communal, a more healthy, physically, mentally, socially environment, have the opportunity to rethink our suburban lifestyles and reorganize them with less dependency on the automobile in ways that are, are more achievable than they may at first seem. Okay, awesome. That might be tough to put in a tweet, but there's this could be one of those. <laughs> it's like one tweet. of six, two, six, and so forth. Now, that's great. That's a great thought. If people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? I have created this website with help that is intended to be a really good portal into all the stuff that, that I'm doing. You mentioned blogs. I've never blogged, <laughs> but I do write articles in addition to, in addition to uh, books. 
and access to all of that, to a whole bunch of videos, to a whole bunch of projects and everything else. And a course at Harvard. Yeah, I'll mention that as well. Maybe you could join me in a year or two whenever that restarts. But the, uh, the website is jeffspeck.com, J-E-F-F-S-P-E-C-K. And there's even a button there that you just push it and you can send me an email. So I answer every email I get, even if just to say I don't have time to talk to you, I will answer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that is really the one, one stop shop. I think that, you know, I would love for folks to take my two day class that's offered almost every summer at the Harvard School of Design on making more walkable cities. However, I would say that, you know, the real first step for people who like to read would be the book Walkable City. The first step for people who don't want to take on another book right now would be the two TED Talks, starting with the one called The Walkable City. And uh, from there, the, the website charts out a very clear course of, uh, of angles for learning more. Awesome. Thank you for sharing so generously of your time and your experience with me and everybody listening. I have gone on the microlending site kiva.org and I've made a $100 microloan to a woman entrepreneur named Martha who's in Nicaragua who will use this money to buy materials to further her her business as a seamstress to improve the quality of life for people in her community, herself and her family. So thanks for giving me a reason to to go make that microloan. Thank you for doing that. I I always do round up my my annual charity on the last day of the year and I gave to about a dozen different organizations and tweeted it out to everyone who would listen <laughs> to get to hopefully get more people to. And yes, by the way, I am on Twitter, even though I'm trying to be on it less and I do use it a lot. So you could also follow me on Twitter and that is Jeff Speck, F-A-I-C-P, F-A-I-C-P after my name. But there are so many great organizations in almost every community, if not around walking, around biking. And then of course, most major cities have a, a regional growth organization like uh, the Coalition for Smarter Growth in Washington, D.C., or some other group that's fighting sprawl. And those can be really great uh, resources to support as well. Awesome. Thank you for that. Okay. Well, Jeff, thanks again for making time. As I said, I've enjoyed this. I've learned a ton from you already. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to learning even more and staying connected in the future. Uh, thank you, Brilliant. I really enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly 
at brian at briannmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.